0: Hello, everyone. I'm Frank Garza with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is lean product development and choosing the right value proposition. And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Elliot Susel. Our guest is Senior Director of Growth at I will teach you to be rich, Lars Lofgren. And with that, I'll hand things off to Elliot.
1: Hello and welcome, my friends, to this week's webcast. My name is Elliot Sussel, senior faculty and lead the startup company. And with me, we have the pleasure of speaking to Lars Lofgren, director of growth at I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Lars, welcome to the show.
0: Super happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Elliot.
1: All right. Today, we're going to be revisiting the topic of growth. And we're going to hit it from a couple different angles. We're going to explore how uh, Lars has helped an organization get rid of their sort of rigid waterfall approach to product development in favor of something different. We'll explore some ways that you can learn about your product positioning, and then we'll get even more focused in on one specific technique, A-B testing. But before we get into any of that, Lars, tell us a little bit about this company, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, many of our uh, enterprise viewers have probably never heard of this company, uh, or maybe they have. T- tell us, uh, what does I Will Teach You to Be Rich do, and, and how did you arrive there?
0: Yeah, so its uh, I know it has a bit of a funny company name. Um, it stands out for good and bad. But um, in a nutshell, what we do is we build uh, online courses uh, for people that helps them to achieve their dreams um, and improve their life in various ways. So we have courses on you know, how to start earning uh, through freelancing, your first income on the side, which is a really big milestone for a lot of people. We have courses on how to find your dream job, how to start an online business, how to get better at copywriting, how to grow traffic how to do customer research, all this type of stuff and the whole goal, helping people improve and get to where they ultimately go, uh, using you know, the right material and systems and helping them accelerate along that path as much as possible. Uh, and I got involved with the company about three and a half years ago. So I've been here a little while now. Yeah. It's yep. kind of a generation in, in tech startup, uh, timelines, but, um, That's right. three years is a small eternity. Yeah, it is a small eternity so, and it's, it's been quite the adventure. Um, but uh, three and a half years ago, before I joined this company, I was actually the head of marketing at uh, Kissmetrics. So I was running growth over there, uh, learned a lot from Heaton Shaw and Neil Patel. And during that period, you know, I've been following Ramit for a very long time and I have an immense amount of respect for him, still do when it comes to marketing and copywriting and direct response and all these fields. And right around the time that I was leaving Kissmetrics, Ramit opened up uh, the exact same role that I was walking away from at his company, and I just had to jump at the chance, right? And yeah. I'm very glad I did.
1: Now, Ramit is the CEO of- Yeah, Ramid's the
0: CEO. He's also the figurehead of the company. And, and he's right now. Uh, but yeah, he's been running everything. Uh, found The sole founder has been, I think we're 13 years old now or something like that, and he's been the CEO the whole time.
1: Okay, so you joined this company as director of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to sort of move into our first topic here, which is this teaser that like, w- was there a waterfall process still when you joined?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's been a, uh, a, a bit of a journey during the, uh, the three years since I've been there. When I originally started, I was actually focusing exclusively on lead gen, or more of a typical demand gen role, you know, drive leads, scale channels that type of thing uh, in the last year and a half i took on my role shifted quite a bit and i got much more involved in product
1: uh, mm-hmm. it
0: became very clear to us that we need to keep driving new products releasing new products and get that that pipeline really really healthy to maintain the growth of the company so i, I stepped in and got started spending a lot more of my time on the product area than necessarily lead channel always I, I still dabble in it and during that transition, you know, before I got involved in on product, where kind of the status of where the product order was when I stepped in was very waterfall driven. It, you know, we released a bunch of these courses, a bunch of these products. We we kind of knew what needed to be in them and we sort of just like ticked the boxes all along. And then, you know, 12 months later, we released this course and do a big marketing launch around it and then hopefully make a bunch of money. Okay. Um, and uh, that was going okay. It had some, some wins, some hookups. Um, and when I stepped in, we started making a lot of changes to it. Uh, now i didn't throw out the entire process entirely, but I did throw out huge chunks of it and adopted much more of a lean focus, particularly early on in the product dev cycle and now i'd say eighty percent of the cycle is completely different than it was you know even you know a year year and a half ago
1: got it and so um you know it's not too surprising to to hear that um when you go from a process where it takes a year to launch the product, mm-hmm. like PS, hopefully we are building the right product. Um, that if you can move to a place where we're learning incrementally, you mm-hmm. might arrive at a better product.
0: Yeah, so, that is the goal.
1: <laughs> let's get into the mechanics of of uh, how you accomplish that, and maybe tell us. Uh, some of the more challenging learnings, mistakes made along the way that taught you really insightful stuff?
0: Yeah, so I, you know, one of the toughest things that I was having to deal with is, I'm sure a lot of product leaders would empathize with this, is that, you know, uh, there's this, especially in the Lean Start community, you're always advocating MVPs and that's a great overall philosophy, but like once you go live- Danger word, MVP.
1: yeah Yeah. go on this
0: this keyword um but uh, um when you go live with your main product you still need a certain level of polish right it it still needs to be finished Yeah, especially once you've sort of been in the game for a while and you're not some scrappy startup that's just trying to get your initial customers once you have a bit of a reputation and a brand and all this stuff like it needs to be polished you can't really de-scope the final product at all in order to get it out faster so you have to come up with a lot of creative ways to get customer feedback during your product cycle even before you go out with the full launch, right? You can't necessarily cycle uh, or accelerate the full launch but you start getting feedback you know, along the way. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks are probably very familiar with the typical methods, you know, user testing and things like that. I think the thing that we did differently and still do and are continuing to push on really hard that i don't see a lot of product teams doing is we will spend the vast majority of our validation or our product cycle, literally half the cycle is entirely devoted to uh what we call positioning or not just you know the mock-ups or the outlines or the structure of this product that we're delivering but it's literally how are we selling Mm -hmm. What is that core headline, that core value proposition that will tell people what they're going to get when they buy it? And if we get that single sentence right, the vast majority of the work is done for us, right? Um, That's the single most important decision that we make. And you know, even though we're, we build courses and it might be slightly different, if I was to join a, a typical Silicon Valley tech team today, enterprise startup, you know, wherever it happens to be, now as a product manager or head of product, I would advocate very strongly to spend the bulk of that product cycle time getting that value proposition, even though a single feature right. If I know how to sell it and if I know the market's more interested than that, than anything else we could be building, everything gets so much easier and it creates a huge margin of error on every like the rest of those little decisions that you know come along the way in any product cycle
1: now let me jump in and ask a question right so okay so getting the product positioning is really Mm -hmm. critical Mm -hmm. right and and you mentioned the value proposition which i like um how do you make sure you've got the right value proposition how do you make sure that what what you've chosen actually is working and i'll add before we, we jump down that line, which I really want to do, um, most product managers or product owners think their job is to like management, ma- like a development backlog, and they spend almost all their time and have no time a day to go do all the other stuff, right? And yeah. the thing that they need to be spending all of their time doing is making sure that what they are putting in that backlog is actually relevant.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's this yeah. very strange phenomena, right? So, yeah. okay, so Let's say we can carve out the time of day, even though this seems like it obviously should be a a priority, to go do this kind of work. What do we do? How do we figure out that our our positioning is right, wrong, or needs to be refined?
0: Yeah, so I think that the biggest lesson that I've learned is to not trust my intuition at all. (laughs) That's step one, right? Like, whatever I think is the right answer is immediately gonna be wrong. You realize this is the opposite of how most CEOs act. Yeah, yeah, I know. Whatever
1: I think is the answer has to be right. Yeah, I right? like well, to get
0: profoundly the opposite. At, at least when it comes to product and figuring out what other people want. Like I, I, there's there, there are, or at least I believe it is from the media, it certainly seems like there's folks that their intuition is a good reflection of the market and they can just follow their nose. Um, you know, there, There's always a cliche examples of Steve Jobs or Elon Musk and all these people that they just build what they want to build and then everyone right. loves it. And I'm sure there are some folks out there that like that are like that. I think they're very rare. And exceptionally value for, uh, valuable and fortunate people, and I'm not one of them, right? Yeah,
1: but so even they make catastrophic mistakes. That's true. Yeah, no right. one has 100%
0: better. Like, catastrophic mistakes. Yeah, so Steve Jobs.
1: I mean, not not to pick on him, because I mean, incredible stuff that Steve Jobs accomplished. But using that gut feel, he has led teams down directions that did not work.
0: Yep. While totally his,
1: you know, famed reality distortion field was able to accomplish some tremendous things. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That's not a, a winning
0: strategy, right? So well so, certainly not for me, anyway. So <laughs> my batting average, whatever it is, yeah. is really terrible. I've come to accept that. And then I just build my processes and have my product development habits set up in a way to account for that. So I'm not relying on my intuition. Yeah. Um, and So the first thing, and I've worked across like a lot of different markets, a bunch of different business models, a bunch of different companies at this point. And, you know, one of the instincts that we all have, especially as we get more experience is, oh, I've seen this before. I've done marketing. I've done product before. I can just jump in and apply all the lessons that I've learned at previous companies and challenges and just dive right in um that has been a hard lesson for me (laughs) every time i try to like shortcut the process Mm -hmm. um, i always get burned so i whenever i'm unless i've worked with an audience a very specific audience um for a while and have a deep intuition for how those folks have been behaving you know over several years uh i always start with just blanket research you know who are these people who, like we say our target market is this, this, and that internally. Is that true? I never take any of that stuff for granted. So usually, even though it sounds really basic, um, I always start with like a pretty generic survey of some kind and just generic customer interviews. The kind of stuff that you do if you were trying to build a company or, you know, you're running a startup for the very first time. Um, Because, you know, maybe the market shifted, you know, since the last time the company really got a good intuition of their customers. Maybe their audience has shifted in some way. Maybe there's some income. Conclusions about the customers that aren't quite correct. So, until I've gotten hands on, which is that basic market data uh, of who these folks are and who we're talking to, I try not to make too many assumptions about what would work, right? So, it's just I go in with zero expectations and figure out who I'm talking to. Yeah. Who's the customer? Who's the customer? Pretty basic idea. Most people go the other way.
1: Most people go profoundly the opposite direction. They say, here's my solution right and they never even try to work their way back to validating who the customer is yeah. right by by going okay the solution solves this problem and these customers like have that problem right but but okay so you start with the customer which makes a ton of sense to mm-hmm. me then what
0: yeah so this is this is a critical point where my process diverges from a lot of the best practices out there, okay. uh, and this is probably a result of I, um, you know before I got involved in product, I a deep background in you know marketing, direct response, lead gen, A/B testing, like that's where I sort of cut my teeth in my career. So I, I take a lot of those same lessons, and if I think back to those periods, a lot of my biggest wins um, were from were very counterintuitive wins that I wouldn't have expected. And the reason I was able to find those wins is I had some sort of process to, um, you know, uh, the formal definition would be some sort of A-B testing method, but basically a way to put a couple different options in front of your market and to get them to tell you which one they like the most. Um, Now, we all know in product that people are really bad at telling you, Uh, what solutions they're going to like pay for and be most excited about that's that's pretty standard yes but there is a nuance to that which is if you put something in front of them and ask them to rank which one they're most excited about or you know if you put something in front of them and ask them whether or not they buy it people are a pretty good judge of whether or not it's gonna tell you if if it's good enough so what we do we've actually started calling them uh, ranking surveys because it's a fast, really easy way to get uh, real data behind these different value propositions, is we'll, you know, after we do the generic surveys and get a feel for the audience, we'll go back to them and say, hey, you know, we have five, maybe seven on the high end, seven different options of value propositions around new features we're considering, new products that we're considering, whatever it may be. We'll put those all in a survey and we'll ask them, which one are you most excited about? Which one do you want us to build the most? And people are a pretty good judge of which one, like they can rank pretty easily. And I am always surprised, even though I think I'm going on like a decade now of like marketing background experience and direct response copy, like you learn all the rules of like what's supposed to sell and what's supposed to work. And I am continually surprised about what wins and it's never what you think it's going to be. So we we focus uh, quite a bit on getting that data, getting our customers to rank things for us. And then once they've done that, we follow the data, right? We go build that.
1: Right? So I thought this would be really interesting, and I wanna explore this style of test a little bit, because one of the things that we frequently try to accomplish with the Lean Startup methodology is to learn not what people say they will do, mm-hmm. but to actually try to observe the behavior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the, the danger is that sometimes people say they'll do things that they don't actually do, right? So yes. for instance, I love to look at New Year's resolutions. Right, Like really good intention, people say like, yeah, I'm going to work out, you know, three times a week or whatever. But the better measure of how much they're actually going to be working out is to look at historically what they've done. Hey, Mm -hmm. tell me about how many times have you worked out in the past? They might say, well, you know, once a week or, you know, once every other week, right? So what I find interesting though, is that you're using this other approach where you're showing them something
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that, that they're not actually committing to doing any of these things. They're just expressing what they're most interested in. And that's yeah, working.
0: Yeah. yeah, it works really, really well. Now, we don't um, we, we don't consider anything done until it's done. You <laughs> don't really know something's um, shipped until it's, it's shipped and, you know, it's, it's, it's got great feedback from the customers. So our process or our validation or lean process doesn't end there. Yep, uh, there's good. a few more steps that we use. But that at least gets us in the right arena that we're pretty confident in. Yeah. The other thing that we do now, this is, this is very particular to our business model and our type of product. Um, so, you know, you might it's getting into more of like an MVP approach. Um, but for us, you know, our, our standard product is these giant, you know, six, eight week courses that kind of walk you through, you know, how to accomplish this really big goal of yours. Well, that takes a lot of work to build something like that sure does. yeah hence the 12 months of production to get one of these things um, out the door so before we really jump into that final version of the product we do uh, we start shipping some uh, really they are mvp versions of the product so we'll drastically de scope and we'll release it on a limited uh, basis it would be similar to like an early access program or a soft launch that you know a tech company might do or an yeah. other do and for us or how what these mvp versions of the product specifically look like is we will instead of doing this giant eight week course with dozens or hundreds of hours worth of video and professional recording and all this stuff we will offer a two-hour paid webinar to our audience right it's still we'll still go over the same basic curriculum some of the core tactics and lessons and material but it's drastically de-scope, we're talking a couple hours. It's limited, so we always limit the seats. It's not a free-for-all for all all of our customers. For us, we'll typically do 10 or 20 uh, seats at the most. Uh, We'll generally try to increase the price a little bit, um beyond what we think we could get for the product and you know there's um we spend we don't put nearly as much effort and polish into the product um, it's all done live there's nothing recorded you know we're working on slides the night before trying to get everything finalized um, it's also a good forcing function for the team because now we have this hard deadline and we have to get this initial version of the product out the door for this small batch of customers and there's a couple of things that we're able to validate and confirm during these kind of MVP uh, versions of our products. Uh, the main thing that we're always looking for is, and this is kind of an intuitive field, it's not really a, a hard metric, but how fast does it sell out? How hmm. fast are we able to sell those 20 seats? And you, know, you kind of have to skew this a little bit, depending on how big your customer base is, how big your audience is. If you're smaller, then yeah, it's harder to sell these things out. But for us, we're, we're you know pretty big at this point. So um, when we have the right offer, we can sell 20 seats for a paid webinar like that, right? It should, it should be hotcakes. It should just go out the door. We should instantly sell out. Hmm. And if, it, if, we re- or if we start to realize that we have to hustle sell this thing <laughs> mm-hmm. like, we have to really put in a lot of work to sell that last 20th ticket to sell out well that's not gonna bode well for the upcoming major product release. yeah we're putting yeah. work in now it's not gonna get any easier um, and if we start to realize that things are, are more difficult than we expected well now we know that okay customers were telling us one thing but their behavior and their wallets aren't necessarily following that, that prediction of theirs. So then yeah. we can reassess and nice. you know, direction direction we need to.
1: Nice, so I, you- I like that. Because now you're getting at the actual behavior and I love that you have some measurements, right? And you've done enough of these probably that um, you can compare to other products you've tried to, mm-hmm. to market in this way and see how it goes. And I think that's pretty interesting. Um, to me, uh, I'd have to think about this a little more, but it sounds very similar to sort of the concierge style minimum viable product yeah. where you like you don't have a final tech you don't have final web pages you don't have final anything right it it's enough to start to do something and a lot of it you're kind of winging as you go and doing yeah. manually what you might later automate but first yep. let's see if it works yeah <laughs> is it worth building out further and automating
0: yeah i think you can do something very similar at a tech company you can try to sell you know a couple of upgrades a couple of add-ons to a few customers see if you can actually close those deals for a limited group of people. And if you're really trying to hustle for it and you have to put in a ton of backbreaking work to make it happen, the odds of that getting any easier when you release to all of your customers or your entire market, it's not going to get any easier after that. Yeah.
1: Well, I think we're broadly talking about the concept of finding product market fit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when you've achieved it, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. because You feel it.
1: Yeah. The, it, the whole organization feels it. Because the, the interest is almost electric. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and, and you bring up a good point that if that's not the case and you're having a hard time selling, like, hey, wait a minute, we, we've got a real problem here. Yep. So um what what happens next? At this point, you like declare victory and then build the whole thing, or is there more testing?
0: Basically, yeah, there's a little bit more testing. And I think the important thing is you know, um, you know well, a lot of folks in product or tech are very familiar for like, you know, agile, lean, don't do the waterfall method. And for the most part, that's true. I think there's a time and place for waterfall, or I understand how teams can kind of fall into it by accident if they're not paying attention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are some serious advantages to it because... Yeah, especially if you have a big product launch with hard deadlines. There are so many tasks that need to get done and they just need to happen. There's QA checks. Q- look, you know, look, if you're building a rocket ship, yep. like I don't want you to do that
1: incrementally and then figure yes. out halfway through that the engine's ever gonna work, right? Like there are things where waterfall does make sense.
0: Exactly. But- yeah. So- and for us, um, we definitely still use Waterfall during kind of the last stage of our product development when we're we're confident about the positioning and the value proposition. We have data that, yes, it's selling. We have actual credit cards to prove it. Uh, we already have a lot of the content, or at least at a high level, the, the, the core curriculum sort of figured out. And students are already getting really excited about that. At that point, we move into the final stage, which is You know 90% waterfall Uh, we start writing all the scripts for the final version of the product We start putting together all the PDFs. We go through a video shoot with our CEO and founder Ramit Um, He approves all the final scripts It's very much like a checklist process and a pretty rigid step-by-step through the final push before the products done Yeah Uh, now there is a little validation that happens during that period. We'll take some of those final scripts and we will will invite a a select few customers manually. There's no public option to sign up for anything like this but for students that we know are exactly within the target market for that product and we have a relationship with them and they've given us good feedback in the past we'll reach out to them and the way we frame it is we ask them if they want to be a part of our advisory council and we we slap a name on it and it sounds very official right
1: so it does sound very fancy uh,
0: really it's just a group of students that have volunteered to give us feedback (laughs) okay but um uh for those folks and what we'll do for us is, you know, since we have these scripts and that basically ends up being the curriculum of the product, we'll ask them to review and read Google Doc versions of these scripts and leave comments. You know, where, where, where do you get confused? Uh, what doesn't make sense? Where would you like us to go deeper? Just sort of that last final pass for the details. Um, a, 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 it's basically a usability test, you know, if I was a tech building you know, on, on a tech team, it's that last usability test. Make sure that there's no kinks, anything you know, critical that people are stumbling over that's going to get in the way of the final launch. So it's that last pass, then we lock everything down, and we just start shipping it.
1: So have there ever been times where you get through that whole process and everything's like looking good, but then it goes live, and it turns out that had, uh, demand's not there?
0: yeah well, um well yes <laughs> well most of the a lot of this process we didn't uh we didn't start building this process because we're like, oh, we're uh, uh, theoretically we like lean startup and agile, and we're just going to do it that way from the get go. Is more of a wait. Our process is not working, and we need to do something differently. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of these lessons have been are, are this process. A lot of the pieces of this process are now in place because of hard lessons previously learned. Mm. Um, I can say that you know the, the reason we spend so much time on positioning. Um, and it's one of the, I guess, one of the fortunes I've had working at a company that releases a lot of products instead of just working on one product and adding new features to it is that we're able to see kind of what it looks like when we have a value proper positioning that really works and we can see what kind of revenue that generates versus a product where it just doesn't really hit. Yeah. And the difference is literally you can four X the amount of revenue you generate by getting the right value prop, like just without worrying about anything else. So when people ask me like, Oh, Hey, why do you spend so much time on positioning? It's like, well, cause I can quadruple revenue if I get this one sentence, right. Right. And then everything else stems from there. So yes, it's worth that time. Um, but I probably wouldn't be nearly as paranoid or strict about spending so much time there. If I hadn't seen these this huge variance between a successful yeah. product and a poor product that the market just doesn't care about. Um, and, you know, I, I did see a lot of the same lessons, you know, through through growth and A-B testing on a SaaS product. You get the right headline on the homepage, you get double conversions off of a single sentence. And it's a very very consistent lever across companies is that headline which is essentially your value prop right all
1: right now let's let's revisit how you get that value prop since that's how we are going to forex our revenue yeah Um, i've often advised that folks when they're doing customer interviews they they ask how many do we do and i say until you can predict what your customer is going to say next yeah right what what approach do you take for getting that value prop and do a really good place and how do you know when you've achieved that
0: yeah um that's a good question <laughs> it's um especially in the early stages i wouldn't say there's like a hard metric yeah um, I, well, a lot of the tools that we use we've already discussed but um like customer reviews we always do customer reviews we have um when you say uh, you do customer interviews yeah this is, this, is, this is something that big companies struggle with, right? They don't know where to
1: get their customers from. Mm, also, yeah, yeah. They may not even have like the processes terms. Yeah, what to
0: ask and then how to analyze the results. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, we found that actually everyone, regardless of company size, struggles with those three items. Mm-hmm. Who do I talk to? What do I ask them? How do I analyze the results? Those yep. are the three sticking points for any customer interview process. Um, one for The answers change as far as who to talk to changes a little bit depending on the stage of the company. Obviously, if you are super early and you don't have an audience or a market yet, then yeah, you got to go hustle and scrape and find other groups to find people to talk to. Once you're an established company of really any size, honestly, the customer reviews are pretty easy as far as finding people to do customer reviews. Hit your customers and or and or hit your email list. Those are the easiest ways, and that's always where I start. Are you paying those people? Never. No incentives. Wow. So this is, I've done so many customer reviews myself. My team has done literally hundreds, if not thousands, of these things at this point, and I have never had a problem getting people to agree to a call. And I say there's probably two two reasons for that. One is people are very willing to help (laughs) Um, way more willing to help than you think they are. Um, and two, if you're having trouble scheduling calls, it's usually a problem with the copy on the email request. You know, it's some super corporate, like we're a research, like organization on behalf of this other company. And we're doing this. It's like this legalese almost email. Yeah. um, asking for an interview, make it, you're basically asking you like you'd ask a friend for an interview, right? And just go to your email list, go to your customers. I know some companies have a bunch of regulation and you need to be careful, but that's fine. Go through those hoops. And, but, you know, find a group of folks you can email directly and say, hey, we're working on this new thing. I'd love to hear what you personally think about this and get your feedback. Would you be willing to jump on a, uh, I prefer to do 60 minute calls, but even if you can only get 20, 30 minutes, you can still get a ton of insights.
1: Yeah. You know, this is interesting. When designing an experiment, I often am thinking about a couple of levers. One is the amount of friction, high friction, low friction, yeah. like in getting to them to sort of uh, do the desired behavior or see if they do the desired behavior. If I make it harder to do that behavior, right, it's a stronger signal. Yep. That, that I'm headed in the right direction, whereas if I make it easier, uh, opposite direction. And in this case, I mentioned that because when we talk about what customers you're talking to, with existing customers, it's probably more likely that they are going to be interested
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in your
1: product or service if they've had a good experience with other stuff you've done, yep. right? So the takeaway there is, if even our super loyal, interested, engaged customers don't like this thing, dot, 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 maybe we're headed in the
0: wrong direction. Yeah. Is that That's right? a good rule to follow. Yeah. Especially for a tech company where, you know, lifetime value is really attractive. Customers are going to be around for a while. You can, I mean, you don't want to negate new customers entirely because onboarding is one of the biggest critical levers and it's easy to forget onboarding. Uh, which can really slow the growth of like a, a SaaS company or a consumer tech company down. Sure. Uh, but um, you know, doubling down on the value of people that you're already serving is a good rule to follow for a lot of tech companies.
1: Okay. And um, do you eventually expand to interviewing people that have never used one of your company's products before?
0: Yeah. Now for us, our customer behavior is a little bit different, right? So what we find is, Uh, the bulk of our students in any year are usually new students. It's very typical for an education type company. Um, So we're we're not as focused on kind of, you know, the the students that have been around for years and years and years. We're almost entirely focused on folks that are considering buying a product for the very first time. So you, you kind of weight that depending on the... Purchasing behavior of your customer base. If the bulk of your customers are purchasing every year or coming back every year, great. You can you can spend a lot of time just going back to your customers over and over again. If most of your customers purchase one year and then they kind of don't come back, which a lot of business models—that's sort of how it works. Um, really, we're really like ninety percent should be on new customers, right?
1: Um. The last part just broke up a little bit there. Say say that last couple sentences again, if you don't yeah. mind.
0: Yeah. So if you have, if, if the bulk of your customers come in and they sort of, they're with you for one year and then they kind of move on, you're going to want to spend the bulk of your product development time on like 90% of it on new customers. Uh-huh. And that's where the, your focus should go.
1: Got it. Okay, so we've covered a ton of ground today. Um, starting with, the ways in which you changed what was once a heavy waterfall process into a very learning-focused process, all the way down to the mechanics, Uh, how you go about harnessing some of that learning, with perhaps one of the biggest takeaways being an emphasis on that value proposition. Yep. Right? Do we have the right value proposition? And if not, do not pass go.
0: Yep. Do not collect
1: $200. (laughs) Yes you won't be collecting money from your customers.
0: Yes. Uh, Is
1: there anything else that you wanted to add or discuss before we start to wrap up?
0: No, I don't think so. It's uh, the more years I spend doing this, the more obsessive I get over that value prop and I don't see it changing anytime soon. So that's where I start. That's where I recommend most people start.
1: All right, there you have it. Lars Lofgren, Director of Growth at I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Find that value proposition Make sure it is on point, accurate. Customers love it. They're eating it up. Then and only then do you pass go. Uh, If people want to find out more about you or your
0: company, uh, where can they look? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Lars Lofgren. I also have a a blog that hasn't been updated in years, which is a bit of an issue. But LarsLofgren.com, a little bit more about me. And then, of course, the company that I'm working with right now, we have two websites, IWillTeachToBeRich.com, which is like personal finance focused. And then we also have GrowthLab.com, which is an online business site.
1: Awesome. Uh, If you've got any questions, audience, about what you heard today uh, and you'd like to follow up with me or Lars, feel free to also send me a message, E-L-L-I-O-T, Elliot, at LeanStartup.co. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing you next time.